Well, we will certainly see how how that appeal plays out over the coming months, if not years. Years, probably years. Fair to say, with that much money in the balance, the parties will ask the Supreme Court to weigh in at some point as well. Welcome to another episode of Exclusive Rights, a Mince Intellectual Property podcast. This is part two of our conversation with David Dusky, who's a damages expert at BDO. If you missed part one, uh, please check it out. We had a, a great conversation about the recent large damages uh awarded by juries, um, pretty wide ranging conversation uh, that that's worth your time. But today in part two, we're going to discuss the apportionment requirement in the context of uh, patent damages. A little more granular, but I think just as interesting. So welcome, Dave. I'm also joined by my partner, Dan Wanger. And if I haven't introduced myself yet, my name is Drew DeVogue. I'm a partner here at Mintz. So, Dave, what is the purpose of apportionment in the context of patent damages? The idea and concept of apportionment as it relates to patent damages is meant really to ensure that a patentee is awarded damages kind of in proportion to the value that its patent contributes to the infringing article. And while it's always been a requirement, even dating back to the late 1800s, it's received much more emphasis and importance, I, I think, over the last 10 or so years, because the uh, products that are oftentimes accused of infringement are multi-component products that embody a whole host of features and benefits and technologies. And oftentimes, the patented technology is, is only one of, of many features and functionalities a product provides. So there's been a greater emphasis to make sure that the damages award, in particular, the, the royalty, is, is tied to the incremental value just that patent provides to the product and, and doesn't compensate the patentee for contributions made you know, in the prior art or from the accused infringer's uh, own efforts. Right. I think a, a good example of, of your, you know, multifunction product that you referenced is the smartphone or, or other converged device where there may be a computer processor, memory, camera functionality, some sort of Wi-Fi or other, you know, cellular communication ability sort of all all packed into to one device. And so if I hear you correctly, the the concept of apportionment is to focus specifically on the contribution of the patented feature of that multifaceted device. Is that fair? Right. I think uh, you summarized it well. So what one of the things that we see happen a lot in in litigation for on this issue specifically is the tension between the SSPPU, which is the smallest saleable patent practicing unit theories and the entire market value rule theories, where how are you supposed to separate what the value to the consumer is when you're establishing these patent royalties? Because taking the converged device example, today, if I was shopping for a smartphone, I wouldn't buy one if it didn't have a camera. I wouldn't buy one if it didn't have 4G, 5G 
connectivity. And I wouldn't buy one if it wasn't Wi-Fi enabled. So it, what's, the, what's the methodology that you can employ to try to separate whether or not a patent directed to any one of those particular features is SSPPU theory or an entire market value rule theory? Well, it's a good question. And based on your example, I think according to the, the federal circuit there, they said that you only could use the value of the entire multi-component product in your example, the, the cell phone, if the patented feature technology is the sole basis of demand for that product. Uh, so in your example, you said that you wouldn't buy a cell phone if it didn't have a camera or, or Wi-Fi, but the federal circuit said that that is not enough to prove the the sole, to be the sole basis of demand. And, and it's not enough to say that even without one of those technologies, the phone wouldn't be able to operate or wouldn't be able to perform or wouldn't be desirable. It literally has to be the sole basis, which is a very high burden to meet. And so oftentimes in cases like that, you want to uh, try to identify to the extent possible, what is the smallest saleable patented practicing unit? Now, uh, sometimes there may not be a smaller saleable patented practicing unit, right? There's not a separate component in there that has, you know, you could find out on the market that has a separate selling price, things like that. So it becomes a little more, uh, a little more difficult. But I think that the fundamental principle still stays the same that you have to derive a royalty rate that reflects only the incremental value that the patent provides, whether it be to the entire product or a, a smaller subset, a smaller component, the SSPPU. Because I think that what the Federal Circuit is is trying to explain is it there runs a risk if you use the value of the entire cell phone, which uh, as we all know that you know that may own cell phones is could be upwards of a thousand dollars or more, is that you risk overcompensating the patentee uh, for contributions he or she didn't make by virtue of of the patented technology. And that's something that, that district court judges analyze very carefully because they don't want to skew the jury and have them hear that uh, you know a company may have sold 10, 20, 30 billion dollars worth of product and have the patentee just say, well, we only want to have a, we only want a fraction of a percent of, of those revenues. That you know, that's one thing that the um, federal circuit has made clear that they want to preclude from from jurors hearing and being misled by. When you're approaching this problem, obviously working on behalf of, of a particular client, like you need to make a decision about whether or not you're going to present a theory of damages, whether as a plaintiff or a defendant. What are the kinds of things that you're looking at in order to make that decision for you know for the best interest of your client, obviously in any particular case? Right. Well, you know, I think you have to look at the authoritative uh, Fed Circuit guidance. And uh, depending on the facts and circumstances of your given case, to, to see you know what legal authority is out there that may support a particular position or approach that you plan on taking. For example, if you look at the Exmark case, uh, you know that was a very interesting case in the sense that the uh, Fed Circuit pretty much stated that you may be able to use the entire market value of a product as the royalty base, so long as the royalty rate is adjusted and reflective of only the incremental contributions that the patented technology make. Because I think that the Fed Circuit uh, stated in that case that it wasn't just the, the baffle that, that infringes per the claims. It was the entire mower that, that infringes. And there wasn't really a, a, a smaller component that, that infringed the asserted patents. In that case, they found that it was allowable to, to use the entire market value of, of the entire mower. So sometimes, you know, looking at 
at the claims and what and what the claims include is important because Exmark I think made clear that patented claims can include both conventional features and novel features. And you have to be very vigilant to make sure that you apportion out the value of any sort of conventional features from that in the de- determination of, of the royalty rate. Um, so that's that's one thing to look at. Um, oftentimes, accused infringers, you know, analyze what design around options did, did we have available to us at the time of the hypothetical negotiation? And could we have modified the product, changed some of the source code perhaps, or, or redesigned the product? in order to avoid infringing the patent. And, and what would have that uh, have costed us to do so? And what would the time have, have taken us to do uh, to perform that design around? And, and would, have, would it have been acceptable to consumers? All things that you need to take into account. That to me sort of underscores the, the conceit and, and I guess the difficulty as well of, of this concept of a hypothetical negotiation because you're basically trying to unwind time and ignore what you have learned in the interim. The concept that an infringer could have but didn't take a different option in solving the same problem that the patented feature solves, it sort of highlights for me the inherent difficulty in, in assessing uh, damages. Well, that, that's true. And I think that that's part of the overall construct of the hypothetical negotiation is it pictures these parties sitting down on the eve of first infringement and negotiating a, a hypothetical license uh, for the, for the you know, patent or patents in suit. And both parties, unlike a real world negotiation, know all the facts and circumstances of, of, of both sides. All their cards are flipped up. Through the book of wisdom, they ordinarily could look into the future and you know have the benefit of of understanding any maybe licenses that would have had or would have taken place post hypothetical negotiation. What actual sales and profits would have been in lieu of just expected sales and profits, and then obviously what alternatives the accused infringer would have had available to it at, at the time of the negotiation. Because obviously, if they're negotiating a license, they're perhaps unwilling to pay more. For a license, then it would have cost them to use the next best alternative that would have been acceptable to its customers. Doesn't always serve as a cap, but I think it's uh, you know a strong argument that accused infringers can make. And sometimes there there aren't any non-infringing alternatives, and and that kind of approach um, falls by the wayside for that particular case. We use legal constructs like this in various places of the law, whether it's like. TARP, the average reasonable person in torts, or the person of skill in the art in a uh, patent context, like for infringement or validity. It just seems to me that the hypothetical negotiation to something that Drew was just talking about is different than those other ones because it it assumes such a level of knowledge and mutual understanding between the two parties that is has been difficult to reconcile when you look at some of the other legal constructs that we use that tries to put the person back at the time with not with no superior knowledge. But these guys doing the hypothetical do do have superior knowledge. And how, how does that play into your approach for trying to calculate your damages from either an entire market value rule or a small saleable unit rule? It's an interesting concept because the fact that at a hypothetical negotiation, the parties had the benefit through the use of the Book of Wisdom, knowing 
facts and circumstances that occurred after such date makes this, uh, you know, an, an interesting conversation because this came up, I, I think, in the VLSI trial where I think Intel argued that the patents in suit had changed hands for, I forget the, the, the amount of money between other parties, maybe closer to the date of the hypothetical negotiation. And they're trying to argue that, well, why isn't that an indicator of value of, of the patents when the uh, patentee may be asking for 10x multiplier of, of, of that amount in damages or something greater? I, I, don't, I can't recall specifics. And the patentee's damages expert brought up an interesting analogy. And it's like, well, it's like Tom Brady, right? Being drafted in, what is it, the fourth round? And, you know, how much would he have been paid under his rookie contract But versus how much would he have been paid at that time if the parties knew what a superstar he would have been over his career and how good he would have been, right? That that changes fundamentally the landscape is if you, if you could look into the future and see the benefits to the accused infringer of the patent and, and all of the sales and profits uh, that may be derived from use of that technology, uh, and, and that differs when parties are sitting down at the negotiating table negotiating a, a real world license. They don't they don't have that benefit, right? So it, it's kind of interesting. It's asking you to consider kind of expected sales and profits and expected profit profitability, but the Book of Wisdom allows you to also consider what actually happened. Just just for the record, Brady was a six round pick, a sixth a, round pick, not a fourth <laughs> round pick. But 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 also that's why it's different than. Like the person of ordinary skill who who you're assuming doesn't know and is not supposed to use hindsight. And in this context, you're not only supposed to like have access to hindsight, but you're supposed to use your forward-looking knowledge to recreate what they would have bargained, having no idea what was going to happen in the future. Right. It's a very interesting way to look at it. I get this concept of having assuming perfect knowledge on each side for purposes of the hypothetical negotiation, which is a ridiculous concept on its own, but it also ignores the real world reality that no accused infringer or potential licensee is going to put his or her cards on the table, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Dave, that's just not how it works. And so too, the patent owner is not going to put their cards on the table during a real world negotiation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I think when parties try to rely on comparable real world licenses, there are oftentimes adjustments that you need to make to analogize that license with that of the, the hypothetical license, right? Because, you know, that license to be reliable and comparable, ordinarily, you have to show technical comparability and economic comparability and account for all the differences there between that real world license and kind of a hypothetical license. So it could be reliable and potentially used as, you know, perhaps a benchmark for a royalty. And following up on kind of the book of wisdom theory, uh, it's, it's my understanding that it's up to the court's discretion whether or not to allow the use of Book of Wisdom. Although I think in every case that I've been involved with throughout my career that the Book of Wisdom has always been allowed. And in fact, both experts ordinarily rely on on the Book of Wisdom. Do you have a, a preference for which apportionment methodology or approach you like to use or or is it more of a case-by-case approach? Based on my experience, it really depends on 
what information you have available to you to use. I think all damages experts would agree with me that they would like to have three or four different approaches that they all discuss and use and all kind of triangulate to around the same range of rates or amounts, because I think it just bolsters the analysis. But practically speaking, it's very rare that you have sufficient data and facts to perform multiple analyses. You know, for example, comparable licenses. It's it's often that if the patentee doesn't have a, a, a licensing history of licensing licensing his or her patents, that may not be an applicable approach. You know, and if the accused infringer hasn't hasn't entered into any comparable licenses, that approach kind of goes out the window. Same with you know kind of the cost approach and and the implementation of design arounds. There may not be non infringing alternatives or design arounds, which in that case you you really can't use that approach as well. You also may, you know, try to look at the analytical approach, which tries to isolate the value or the contribution of of a patent by comparing a product that contains the patent invention and an analogous product that is similar in in literally every other way, uh, except for the patent, and then compare prices and profit margins to help try to isolate what that patented technology, you know, adds to the end product. We've seen more recently the use in the VLSI case, uh, uh, hedonic regression, which measures the impact, you know, of product attributes uh, on the price of the product. And I think in that case, it was how does chip speed and performance affect price? So for, you know, a 1% increase in performance, how much more could Intel charge for that chip and trying to isolate the value of the patented technology that way. So there's there's a whole host of approaches, but it's oftentimes very difficult to get the requisite information one needs to be able to perform, you know, multiple approaches. So I think it really oftentimes lies in in what what facts do we have and what do we have to work with? Yeah, that makes sense. You you mentioned the hedonic regression approach, and that's something that piques my interest. I was involved in International Trade Commission investigation in which our expert deployed a hedonic regression analysis to determine or to render an opinion as to whether the patent owner had you know, lived up to its obligations under certain RAND commitments. These were alleged standard essential patents. And I guess the oddity that I see in, in that analytical approach is that you're really using price as a proxy for value of the patented feature. Am I, am I off the mark there? No, I, I think that conceptually that, that makes sense. And I think the idea in the VLSI case was that, well, if the patent invention contributes to a, you know, a 1% increase in, in speed, what could Intel, how did Intel benefit from being able to sell chips with increased speed? And presumably, according to the analysis, they were able to charge more for those chips. And because in that case, as I understand it, the expert didn't identify any other costs associated with being able to achieve that increase in speed that any sort of increase in price would then increase would lead to the same increase in profit to Intel. And that 
was a reflection of the value of the patented technology. And I'm kind of summarizing here. There was a, it was a much more rigorous analysis, as I understand it, than that. And you had to apportion out contributions made by Intel and so on and so forth. But I think that was, you know, that was the gist of it. And, you know, my understanding is the hedonic regression has been around for a while, but it's ordinarily used in antitrust type cases. And it hasn't been used much in traditional patent litigation. And I think that Intel's one of Intel's main critiques of the hedonic regression is there wasn't any evidence that that type of analysis is used in real world licensing negotiations to help derive a, a royalty rate. And it'll be interesting to see how the federal circuit kind of weighs in on this, given the $2.2 billion damages award. Right. I think you anticipated my next question, and that is, has the Fed circuit taken a position as to whether hedonic regression is an acceptable uh, analytical framework for for a patent damages award? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I would defer to the both of you to to, to see if if you're aware of any uh, federal circuit guidance, but I'm not. And that's why I'm sure... Uh, VLSI is is hoping that it survives that appeal because I don't I don't think that there's requisite CAFC uh, you know authority out there that they could point to, and so it's it's anybody's guess as to whether or not that's that's going to uh, survive or perhaps be uh, remanded for a new uh, damages trial. Well, we will certainly see how how that appeal plays out over the coming months, if not years. Years, probably years. Fair to say, with that much money in the balance, the parties will ask the Supreme Court to weigh in at some point as well. Dave, really appreciate you spending time with us uh, in this second part of our conversation. Again, uh, for our listeners, if you haven't checked out part one of our discussion with Dave Dusky, encourage you to do so. Great conversation about large damages award. We appreciate the time and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dan and Andrea. Really, uh, really enjoyed the discussion as well. 